0: Thank you, Landon. Good morning. We have a a little demon in our lighting system. <laughs> like a field mouse or something. Hey, it's Thanksgiving on Thursday. Mmm. And today is First Fruits Sunday. Yay! (laughs) You know, First Fruits is a day in a month of Sundays when we focus on giving God our first and our best. Our first fruits. That's really the definition of first fruits, giving God our first and best. Thanksgiving Day. on Thursday, we always have First Fruit Sunday, the Sunday prior to, for, to Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving Day, I was thinking this week how big a deal Thanksgiving has been in my life. And maybe yours too. I mean, it comes every year. Every year of my life, there's been a Thanksgiving day. And when I was living with my parents, we got together with mom's parents and all the cousins and everybody would... And there would be, oh, the table on white linen and silverware and cranberry sauce and stuffing and big big turkey golden... Dripping with butter and mashed potatoes, a hot cauldron of gravy. I got a little carried away. (laughs) But honestly, that has been a gathering for family, different wings and divisions of family but family nonetheless and very special memories from childhood to adulthood very special times i remember thanksgiving day from palm turkeys and pilgrims prayers in grade school to those special family gatherings and i thought it was a special day that everybody around the world since the beginning of time, enjoyed. I mean, really, why wouldn't a young kid think that, that around the world everybody celebrated Thanksgiving and it had been done that way since cavemen and women in caves. But uh, late as I was to the party, I didn't realize, but I did come to realize, and slow to grasp, I did grasp the fact that President Lincoln, President Abraham Lincoln, set aside the last Thursday of every November as a national day of Thanksgiving, and he did that in 1863. That's not that long ago. It's amazing what someone can do with a good use of his or her power at hand. Think of the good that President Abraham Lincoln did because he had the power at hand to turn the last Thursday of every no- November from an ordinary day to a national day. Of thanksgiving and just try on for the moment this thought how much of your life would be missing if you had not spent every last Thursday of the month of November from the beginning that you can remember spending time probably. I know not true of everybody. I know it's not a perfect day for everybody, but for most people, it is a day of thanksgiving in which you spend it, and you have memories of giving thanks or appreciation, or even on your snarkiest thanksgiving, there might have been that initiative and impetus from something in that day or someone on that day or something you heard, maybe even on television, because of that day to give thanks that you would otherwise have not have given. Think of the people, imagine the people who want nothing to do with God, but they're a little bit more thankful because on that day, They're moved by some part of a national day of thanksgiving to themselves give thanks. Well, it's been a big part of my life. Wiser now, I realize that in Christ, every day is Thanksgiving Day. According to the Apostle Paul, thanksgiving is to be continuous... In fact, Paul exhorts us to be thankful, to give thanks in all circumstances. Gratitude is a mark of our Christianity. Gratitude is an indication of our piety, our devotion to God. In contrast, to impurity, greed, filthy talk, unholiness, and even idolatry. All things that Paul contrasts with grateful and thankful-hearted Christianity. For Paul, ingratitude is idolatry because it does not acknowledge God as the giver of gifts ingratitude Paul makes clear in Romans chapter 1 is the original sin of Adam and Eve when as he addresses to humanity that they know about God but they do not acknowledge him as God or give thanks to live in thankfulness is to live a god centered life. Peter J. Lighthart wrote a book published a couple years back. I bought it and read it. An entire book, can you imagine? Called Gratitude. The subtitle is An Intellectual History. In fact, Lighthart goes back to the beginnings of written history to the things written and he traces the entire kind of history of gratitude in the records and the history of humanity and its various denominations and nationalities down through history and he sees a tremendous turning point with Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul, the New Testament, the Gospel, and Christianity. In other words, at that time, gratitude was valorized in such a way and ingratitude condemned that Christian thought And Christian generosity was remarkable and influential for centuries, affecting the economy, the conduct of business and life in gift giving and gift returning. All of it changed by Christianity. So no wonder we're to be a thankful, grateful people. That's just a brief personal historical perspective, very brief, to boost an appeal that I want to make to you this morning. And it's really not my appeal. It's an appeal from Scripture and therefore from the very heart of God. It's an appeal that we are to be a thankful people not as a duty or law, but to be thankful from a resource within us, a reservoir of grace native to us because we are God's children, breathing the very breath of his Spirit because of his love and grace. Because of his Son, all built upon a life lived for us and for the world out of love, mercy, and grace, and ultimately demonstrated sacrificially. That is our deep inheritance as his children, and therefore, gratitude that brings forth generosity mirrors, mirrors the grace that we have received and the generosity that we have received. God expects gratitude to become generosity. God expects gratitude to become generosity. I don't... I'm going off script here, but I don't think a person can be a Christian and be ungrateful. I just don't know how that life could express authentic faith. Faith has to apprehend what God has given, and that has got to produce some gratitude because gratitude, by definition, is the very response to grace. They are interlinked philologically, that is, in terms of the very language in which the words are expressed. Gratitude is the response to grace, and gratitude is Something that just has to express itself in generosity. In the Old Testament, God wants his people to be grateful, to be a people of thanksgiving. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 17 through 18, we hear God saying to his people, you may say to yourself, my power... My strength have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to our forefathers, as it is today. And of course, who is the forefather of forefathers? Well, that forefather is Abraham. Abraham. Abraham was grateful. His character, his character is summed up in one word, the word faith. Paul calls Abraham our father on the basis of his faith. In Galatians chapter 3 verses 8 through 9, Paul wrote, in you, Well, first he quotes what was said to Abraham from God the Father. In you shall all the nations be blessed. And then Paul continues, So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. And he uses this expression, the man of faith. I I think that is so cool. I hadn't really noticed that until this week. Paul calls Abraham the man of faith. The faith man. The manly, manly, faith, faith man. The man of faith. When you look up faith, there's Abraham. And I wish I had time to elaborate just how important that is. But it was faith in God's promises that led Abraham to pack up and leave home, to leave Ur and to follow God's call to an unknown land, the land of Canaan. It was faith in God's promises that led Abraham to offer unselfishly, even sacrificially, the choice land to his nephew, Lot. It was the same faith in God's promises that prompted Abraham out of gratitude to God for an astounding victory in battle, a battle in which he was able to retrieve his nephew Lot and all of his possessions which had been taken. It was out of gratitude for, so to speak, being completely restored that Abraham went to the king and priest of Salem, later to be Jerusalem, and offer a portion of the totality that God had given and restored to him, a tithe. It is the first tithe mentioned in the Bible. Gratitude is a transfiguring expression of our faith in God. The tithe is good because it is an expression of faith that comes out of gratitude to God. We see that in Genesis 14, 19 through 20, which I've just described to you, when Abraham gave a tithe unto the Lord. The tithe, even as we see it played out in the life and experience of Abraham, a tithe honors God. It's a proportional standard of expressing thanks because he has provided for us out of his goodness. God, to make this absolutely clear, God gives $10, and we give a tenth, a tithe in return to express recognition that the $10 came from him, and we appreciate And we want to honor his gracious, giving goodness. That's what Abraham did in Genesis 14, 19, as recorded in verses 19 and 20. In the Old Testament, tithing was a reminder to the people to be grateful. It was like Thanksgiving Day. A time to give thanks, a time to remember that we are not self-made. Tithing makes no sense to people who have only themselves to thank. I remember in third grade, and I don't, I don't know how, in third grade we learned about where milk and milkmen come from, and in the fourth grade, we learned about the um, mission system in California. And uh, I really liked the thing on milk because I didn't know where the milkman came from. And I thought he made the milk. <laughs> really, it was, it was pretty amazing when I was a young kid and... and um, I remember some of the things that I grew up with in, we lived in Long Beach, and that was the late 50s, and when, I mean, there used to be a bread man who came down the street and would put up the sides of his bread truck, and the, the, the wives in their pastel dresses with the belt around their thin waists and their full dresses, all all made up, they would come out of their houses and buy bread around the bread truck, and then the milkman would come. He had an all-white uniform, really cool, and these trucks that he drove around with the decals and the bright colors, and then he would bring this tray of, you know, it would depend on how many quarts of milk, and the butter and the cottage cheese and the milk bottles would be frosty and with dew And he would leave it, you know, it was like Santa Claus, only he brought milk. And so it wasn't until the third grade that I realized that the milkman didn't make the milk. It was then that I learned that it came from cows, chocolate milk from chocolate cows. (laughs) I think you get my point. Sometimes I think, you know, we're raising a generation, just maybe, I don't know. I don't know what they teach in school anymore. I I know we have teachers, so you can school me later at what happens in third grade, for example. But, you know, I think I've run into some kids who I, I think they think that grocery stores are born and all the products there they make or something. I mean, we have in our society lost complete touch with where things come from. We're not schooled in how to fix things ourselves because we're not allowed to look behind the curtain or under the hood, so to speak. And we're becoming increasingly alienated from from the source of things, and all the more so when the source is ultimately God. That is the teaching of the Bible. That is our faith. In the Bible, God is not only the creator of all things, but also the sustainer and provider of everything necessary for life. And God required a tithe to remind Israel, his people, that life and its provisions come from him. Wealth and prosperity was to bring about a spirit of generosity toward others and a greater trust in God and His divine providence and care. Gratitude to God was to be expressed concretely by bringing tithes and offerings to the tent of meeting, it was dedicated to God. Dedicated to God's ministry, dedicated to God's ministers, the Levites, and dedicated as an act of worship unto the Lord. In our household, tithing has uh, always been an act of faith. Mom, when I was a little kid... Uh, Most know I ran away from the Lord for a big chunk of my life, but I remember as a child being given a nickel or a dime and explained, explained to me what it was all about. When I came to Christ at 19, that really turned things around because I, at that point in my life, was not riding on the clouds of other people's goodness and kindness, and partic- particularly my parents. But I was at a point in life where I was facing real life on my own. And I was in great straits of personal desperation and discouragement. And I gave my life to Christ out of that. Paul says, out of that surrender, in Colossians 2.6, as you received him so live in him and that surrender to me was one of the hardest things I did but it was an act of response to a gracious God who was offering me so much in life through Jesus Christ if only I would swallow my own pride and consent to letting him be the better Lord of my life than myself the beauty of the thing is that when I met Shelley and we got married, we had been both taught to tithe, and tithing became just a regular thing in our lives. And I'm not tooting my horn by saying we tithe. We've tithed our whole life, and God has always taken care of us, always, always, always provided. But I mention it because now we tithe online, and I don't like that. I'm just sharing with you my heart because it has taken out of my hands the privilege that we used to take turns Putting the tithing offer, offering envelope into the offering that we brought into the Lord's house and gave unto Him. I find other ways to do that, to demonstrate that worship. And this morning, what I'm talking about is not confined to your tithe, it is an act of gratitude, it is an act of worship but there should be many ways in which we express our gratitude in worship to God for all of his provision. In fact, in Matthew 23:23, Jesus took a few shots at the religious leaders like me, and he said, You fail to observe the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, even though you tithe on all these little matters. You're really good about watching the economics. You're above reproach in tithing. You're paying your dues, but you're missing my heart. Because although you're faultless in tithing, which is a good thing, there's no gratitude behind it. It's just bookkeeping for you. Because at the same time you're tithing, you're not paying attention to justice. You're not leading a life that expresses justice. Did I teach you that way, God says? Have I not shown you justice? Have I not been impartial with you? Have I not overlooked your faults? And shortcomings and wrongdoings. Have I not been merciful with you?" That's what he's saying to the religious leaders as Jesus says, you tithe, but you don't show justice. You don't show mercy. You don't show faithfulness. You're not there for people when they need you. You're there when it's profitable. It's important to tithe, but don't miss the point of the tithe. The tithe grows out of gratitude. When we really know who God is, how he, when we have taken to heart, when we have been transfigured emotionally, spiritually, in our hearts by the grace of God, His love, His forgiveness, His mercy, it's across the pages of the New Testament and it's written in holy living and life down through the years of history by His church. If we're not touched in that way, then it doesn't matter how much we tithe. We're missing the whole point. We're an ungrateful people, and we can't express the true Christ of Christianity, the power of God's spirit, that He is our Heavenly Father, without thanksgiving and gratitude. And that should be expressed in many, many ways, even more, not only the tithe, but even more in generous giving. In Second Corinthians chapter nine verses seven through 10, it's even better to be generous. God is generous to the generous. Note the description of God in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 7 through 10. God loves a cheerful giver. Now, why would God love a cheerful giver unless he's a cheerful giver? God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And then he quotes some Scripture to support this, and he adds, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. The harvest of your righteousness is when you trust God, you have faith in God, And out of his generosity, which you see, you see when you're grateful. You see it when you're thankful. You know, we don't take credit for that. So we receive it. And because it's a gift, then we turn around and we express it in generous gifts. And Paul says, now that's righteous living. See? And that, that is, isn't it? I mean, that's only just, isn't it? It's only faithful. In fact, it's, it's merciful. This isn't an investment of money to make money. It isn't a scheme that we're involved in. It is, it is recognition of God's goodness in our lives and giving thanks. And it being... Something that permeates our thoughts and our hearts, because we live not in a merit economy, not in a well. We do live physically in in a capitalist economy, which is a merit economy. We live in a gift economy, because we are Christians. And those two will always battle one another. And the merit economy will eclipse the gift economy again and again. I pulled up an article from a while back when David Brooks of the New York Times in an op-ed titled, The Structure of Gratitude described dispositional gratitude. Now just think as I read some of his excerpts, dispositional gratitude. They seem he's talking about people not who are grateful just here and there, but they just seem to be grateful all the time. He says they just seem thankful practically all the time. These people may have big ambitions, but they've preserved small anticipations. As most people get on in life and earn more status, they often get used to more respect and nicer treatment, but people with dispositional gratitude take nothing for granted. They take a beginner's thrill in a word of praise at another's good performance or at each sunny day. These people are present-minded and hyper-responsive. And then he goes on a little bit later, and he says, They are hyper-aware of their continual dependence on others. They treasure the way they have been fashioned by parents, friends, and ancestors who were in some ways their superiors. They're glad... The ideal of individual autonomy is an illusion because if they were relying on themselves, they'd be much worse off. And people with grateful dispositions are attuned to the gift economy where people are motivated by sympathy as well as self-interest. In the gift economy, intention matters. We're grateful to people who tried to do us favors, even when those favors didn't come, didn't work out. In the gift economy, imaginative empathy matters. We're grateful because some people showed they care about us more than we thought they did. He says, people with grateful dispositions, listen carefully to this, see their efforts grandly, but not themselves. Life does, doesn't surpass their dreams, but it nicely surpasses their expectations. And why does it all come down to expectations? He began his essay by saying, you know, when I stay at a nice hotel, I'm often kind of grumpy and disappointed because I expect things to be perfect. And when they aren't, I find I get a little cranky. But he says, when I stay at a budget hotel, I find that if there's a blow dryer, I'm excited and really happy because it was more than I expected. And that's the nature of gratitude. It spikes when things exceed our expectations. And if we have low expectations because we serve a Savior who sacrificed everything and we realize we're a product of grace and the object of his great love and not our merit and not our worth, it helps us to keep our expectations in perspective and we find that we're a dispositionally grateful person because that grace is always working within us and we're not, so to speak, people of arrogant haughtiness in a merit society where we think we deserve more and more. Well, We see that kind of sacrifice is really the best kind of giving and living, and it's illustrated in Mark 12, 41 through 44. I got a letter from a former student. He was a little bit older. I had older students a lot of times. That happens when you get up into, like when you're teaching at master's level. People return to school, and so I had even older students who were, Kept in touch, and this particular student has become a friend. And he he wrote me, um, my wife Sherry and I desire to honor our Lord. We make sixteen thousand eight hundred and eighty-four dollars per year from Social Security disability. I struggle each month just to pay bills, but food, buy food, and prescriptions. We give a small amount on a regular basis, but feel guilty that we are no longer giving and serving at the level we once did. We do not tithe now, and I would like to know what Christ has to teach and say for our age and stage in life. And I wrote back, David, the answer is found in your opening sentence. We desire to honor our Lord. That's really the answer to his question. That's what, that's what Christ has to teach and to say about their age and stage in life. And then I continued. The problem you face is in the fourth sentence. We feel guilty that we no longer give and serve at the level we once did. And I said, David, in other words... Let go of the comparison from the past. The past is not God's standard. Your past is not God's standard. Neither is the standard what others can give that you cannot match or exceed. Jesus indirectly spoke to this in Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. Jesus did not draw attention to this widow who entered into the temple area and the treasury, which, by the way, a treasury back then, I don't have the time to explain it at length, but even the temple treasury was a place, a hub of business, like a Wall Street, you might say, in the ancient world. And the temple, Herod's temple, the temple that they were in, was huge. It was a wonder of the world. And can you imagine me, the disciples making their way into that temple, what was just bigger than anything you'd ever seen, like when my parents first took me to San Francisco, and I had been left so many times behind saying, "We're sorry, honey, we have to leave you with the, you know, your favorite babysitter. We're going to the city. The city, the city. And so when we finally went to the city, you know, and there was the drawbridges and the skyscrapers and the bright lights, it was, I'd never seen anything like it in life. And the disciples are, you know, they're just, whoa, look at this. This is incredible. They're not even at Jesus' side. And he sees this widow wander in and get in line to bring her tithe. And he calls the disciples over. You know what's remarkable about this story in the Gospel of Mark is that it's the last episode of the Holy Week of Jesus' life. He's been all week teaching, teaching and uh, dodging deftly some of those awkward and really cagey questions that religious leaders were posing to him. And he was challenging people with this good news that he had to deliver, and he was even contesting the establishment with the kingdom of God, kind of a subversive rhetoric about what God was doing in the world. And here we are in the last day of that, and the sentence in the Gospel of Mark, just before the woman appears, Jesus is talking about the religious leaders, the teachers of the law. And he mocks the way they walk around in fancy clerical dress, how they bask in public greetings and flattery and serve high table seats, reserve high table seats at civic and religious functions. And then there's this last sentence right before this widow. And it says this, how they take advantage of widows and rob them of their homes under a pretense of piety. And that's what Jesus calls the disciples over to see. You see, widows were not always sweet old ladies. Sometimes they were young. Living even to 50 in first-century Palestine was a long shot. Many widows were underclass in society. If they died without children, they had probably no inheritance. They had to beg. You remember Naomi and Ruth? There you have an old and a young widow. Read the book of Ruth. And read it with an eye to how they lived and suffered in that society in the outskirts, but now in the very temple, the banking center of the whole state. Jesus sees this widow, and she comes in with what we call mites. It was the smallest denomination of money, two of them, all she had. In line with all of these well healed, wealthy people who give out of their reserve and their extra and their surplus, and she gives out of her all. And what is amazing to me is that she gives it all. Let me change the punctuation that she gives at all. Why is she not angry when the religious leaders are ripping her off when the models and examples of their belief are not caring for her but in fact deepening her position and ostracism within the community and society and yet she brings her to small pieces of offering because she's not bitter toward God. She trusts God. She loves God. She knows God is greater than even his representatives. And that's no excuse, but I just see it as the most beautiful example of sacrifice. And then when Jesus leaves, who knows, probably walking a little briskly, perhaps a little angered. The disciples are walking with him, and they're just all in awe of the sights. And he says, you think that's pretty grand, huh, boys? And then in chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, the very next verses, he says, it's all going to be a bunch of rubble. It's all going to come crashing down. And you know what Jesus did? He went to the cross to displace that temple, That which needed to be rebuilt would be rebuilt in three days. And he would build it with a new people and a new heart and a new commitment to God to live for him and serve him. People of gratitude, of generosity, and sacrifice just like the one they follow. Stand with me. I'm going to pray for us. I'll be down here. If the Lord's spoken to your heart and you want to pray about something, you know, there's no, every profound decision for God is made in your heart, not in mine. You'd all be perfect if you were were made in my heart, because I would wish that for all of us but it's made in your heart. But if you want to pray with us about something that God has put on your heart, a decision that you've made for him today, then you come. If you want to intercede for someone else, so for any reason, we invite you to come after I say amen. I'll be here along with pastoral staff, our elders and spouses, ready to pray with you. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, your Holy Spirit, which works within us. Thank you for the new life that we have, thank you for your grace, which creates within us a deep and rich gratitude that flows in generosity and sacrifice because of Jesus, in whose name we pray, and all of God's people said, God bless you.